0: Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller chronicle reread podcast.
1: We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it.
0: Welcome to Tales from the Waystone season 2 episode 26. Hey, I just met you and this is crazy. I pawned my loot, so patronize me maybe. Oh gosh. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) You're welcome.
1: Oh.
0: Where we will be looking at chapters 53 through 55 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of First Impressions.
1: Lovely episode title.
0: The Creative Process Sometimes Bears Fruit.
1: Something something fruits bears? I don't know. For all of those newbies out there, welcome. Welcome a quick explanation of the pod. Each week we will be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phonemus of the week. After that we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then we will share a recommended thing of the week. Finally we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are no way affiliated with Patrick Rothis or his publisher Dog Books. Secondly, spoilers abound for all of the King Killer Chronicle. Also a word to our community: be kind to yourselves, one another and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. And now, for a recap of the section, in 45 seconds or less, or else, yummy yummy cherries.:
0: Um That was the wrong adjective.:
1: I don't see what was wrong with it.
0: So you ended it with ummy, and it should have ended with ucky.
1: Nah. Anyway, 45 seconds on the clock, and I have a timer ready.
0: For once. Ready when you are.
1: All three. In three, two,
0: one, go. Kvothe arrives in broke, starving with naught but his loot. He pawns it for something bespoke in the form of a suit. After some clever eavesdropping, Quoth identifies his mark—a baronet who, stopping, helps the young lad with his lark. With clever bluffs and bluster, Quoth infiltrates the court, which loses none of its luster for hosting Quoth's sort. The mayor houses Quoth in a luxurious cage and clothes him in finery, which fills Quoth with rage, though he enjoys the winery. After a brief outdoor stroll, the two get a feel for one another, and Quoth starts to troll the courtly gossip, which he smothers. Do you think you have to eat cherries? I do not.
1: Do you know that you don't have to eat cherries?
0: I do not know, but I think. You know. Yes! 27.20
1: seconds.
0: No cherries for me.
1: Congratulations on saying it that fast. Thank
0: you. Let's talk a little bit about this passage. So our lens here this week is first impressions, and we've got a bunch of different first impressions going on. First, we have Kvothe's impressions of the city itself. Similar to Tarbian, this is a very stratified society.
1: I'd also say that in a little way, there is a assumed first impression of the city towards Quoth.
0: Yeah, he arrives in a shambles. <laughs> he didn't have a good trip. No. This is why you don't fly Frontier Airlines.
1: Oh God. <laughs> or Spirit. <laughs> and now they're trying to be the same thing.
0: Topical humor that'll make no sense.
1: It it makes sense now. Just in a couple of years, maybe not so much.
0: Point being, the only things he's managed to salvage from when he left were the things that he secreted in his loot case. He's lost his gram, he's lost his clothing, he's lost fella's cloak. Pretty much anything that wasn't in the loot case, he's lost.
1: Hence, why last time, or the time before, I think it was last time, I mentioned how anything of personal or monetary value that Quoth really needed to keep is now in Davy's possession for plot reasons.
0: Well, he lost some important things, too. Like the Graham, now he no longer has protection against Ambrose, who, as we know, is in Vintus.
1: Right, but I think that he's probably gotten a little bit bored with trying to ferret out who exactly broke into his rooms. Like, That doesn't seem to be a plot point at any stage from here on out. And he'll be able to replace that. That's not precious.
0: Well, and we also lost that token from Fella, which is something that is a reminder of his friendship with her.
1: The cloak is painful. Quite literally, because he had to use it for bandages.
0: And we know that he loved that cloak, too. Like, he dearly loved it.
1: (laughs) I know. It's really sad. Though... I don't know about you, but this whole introduction makes me think of any time a friend of ours has ever told us, let's just say they had an allergic reaction to something that they knew that they were allergic to, but they didn't know was in the food that they were eating. And you're just like, did you go to the hospital? And they're like, no, I was fine. And you're just sitting there horrified at this story going, you, what, huh? That's how I feel about both talking about how he ate two days ago.
0: Yeah, he's very cavalier about that one. <laughs> Granted, his tolerance for this kind of suffering is higher than average because of his time in Tarbien. I'll also say it kind of feels like anytime you start a later installment of a video game series where they have to give you a reason why the hero is starting back at you know zero inventory and no abilities or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Quite true. Here's what he's got left right now. So he's got his loot, his letter of introduction from Threp, then Nina's drawing of the Chandrian, and then some stolen clothes. That's literally all he's got. And he's
1: probably very happy that he stored those apples.
0: Yeah, that was really handy right there. Then we move into our description of the actual land itself. Like Tarbien, it's a city on a hill, but it's even more extreme. So in Tarbion, of course, we had Dockside, which was the low town where it was all the poor people, and then Hillside, which was all the rich people. Here, we've got Severn Low, which is down at the bottom, and then you have an actual cliff. That's just how high above everything else the mayor really is.
1: And to make things just a little bit more intimidating, Mayor Alvaron's home, I was going to say house, but it is not a house, it is pretty much a palace, is located on a jutting peninsula that overlooks all of
0: Severin Low. He's got himself some nice digs. He can see everything, and it's a super defensible position. And it's also one that is a cut above a cut above the rest. So Kvothe's in a tight spot here. He knows that he can't walk in to the mayor's palace in his rags with nothing to show for himself but a letter and a loot case so he has to do the painful thing and pawn off the loot and the case he's in a really tight spot here and we know that this also puts him on the clock once he gets into the mayor's good graces
1: not even when he gets into the mayor's good graces like he's on the clock immediately he has 11 days
0: And it's tough for him. We can see just how difficult it is for Quoth to go without his loot. It's so important to his sense of identity and self. And to have to part with it, even for a temporary period, is pretty traumatic for him.
1: On top of that, he really doesn't know if he'll ever get it back.
0: Yeah, it's some legit uncertainty.
1: Like, we've actually had friends that had to pawn their instruments And it's just such an awful feeling. But at a certain point, you need clothes and food more than you need your instrument. I've been in a situation where I've had to sell jewelry. Luckily enough, at that point, I didn't want it any longer. But it's still an ooky feeling to have to sell your things so that you can eat.
0: Like I say, he's in a tough spot. So... In exchange for his loot and the case, he gets eight silver nobles and a receipt, which gives him 11 days to buy it back, after which the pawnbroker can sell it for whatever price they want. And it's probably going to go for a lot more. So he uses this money to buy a new suit of clothes, a pair of good boots, a haircut, a shave, a bath, and his first solid meal in three days. I'd say this is probably a pretty good return on investment, given what his task ahead is. I mean, he needs to look the part, for one thing. He also needs to feel good. So having a good meal, especially when you've been starving as long as Quoth has, is crucial to being able to do the task that he's got ahead of him.
1: Also, just from my own experience with you, sometimes you let your beard go, and then when it gets trimmed, you say you feel loads better.
0: Yeah. I feel like I've unburied myself from something that's been holding me back. And I can see where he's coming from here. He wants to feel good, to look good, and then having a good solid meal so that he can be his best. That's part of it. So then Kvoth knows that he needs to do a little bit of intelligence gathering. So he camps out in a cafe near the border of Severin High and just orders himself some hot chocolate, and then people watches for a bit to get a sense of the comings and goings of the local nobility and get a sense for who's who.
1: What I love is that he knows who to ask for more information than he can gather by just watching. And he talks to the waiter at the cafe, who would really desperately like for him to spend more money than just the amount for one cup of hot cocoa. But Quoth isn't going to do that because Quoth does not have any money any longer. However, what he does have is an overinflated sense of self and his ability to be an amazing actor or actor.
0: Acting! I get the sense, though, that he's doing some sociological observation here that's actually pretty important. One of the first things that we learned is that Ventus is different from the Commonwealth, whereas the Commonwealth makes the nobility jump through hoops to get things their way, where laws do apply to them, but they can kind of buy their way out of them. In Ventus, there is no law.
1: Well, there is law, there's just not law if you have money.
0: Well, it's not money, it's status.
1: Fair enough. That is very true. Status is everything, but usually status comes with money.
0: Status allows people to obtain money, but it is not the only way. But money does not get you status. Not in Ventus, anyway. This is a nobility culture, not a merchant culture.
1: Right. But I'm going to say it's still a little debatable that money does not buy you status at all.
0: Let me put it this way. Someone with a noble birth but no money... Still carries far more weight than the richest merchant. That's fair. So, this is a different sort of society. And by rights, if a noble wanted to have Quoth whipped and beaten through town for no other reason than that it amused him, he would be within his rights to do so as far as the law of the land is concerned. So, it's a lot more risky for Quoth to do what he's doing here.
1: Now, to speak of what Quoth is doing, and to tie it back also to something that we just watched earlier today. So Corridor Crew had a video that was trying to prove that the Clark Kent Superman dynamic isn't as stupid as everyone thinks. Oh, I'm just going to put on a pair of glasses and curl my hair funny, and no one will notice that I am Superman wearing glasses. So playing the part is a huge thing. And I'd say that that video disproved the close acquaintance to close friend not knowing that you're the same person but what it did do is it did prove that heist movies and similar ideas of blending in actually does work and actually does fool people you can change your mannerisms to what people expect from the role that you are playing. And it dramatically changes how people see you to the point where you could go into a group of people that you know quite well. And as long as you're playing a part and possibly wearing a mask, you can get away with just being in their presence and them not knowing that it's you.
0: In this case, he identifies one Baronet Peter, who looks like he's kind of a jerk. So Quoth targets him and just lays it on, you know, full entitlement and privilege. And just by essentially bluffing this guy.
1: Kind of like he did in Tarbian when he finally realized, oh, I could just do this thing. I have a need. I have a skill. I'm going to put those together and I am going to... Act my way through being the haughtiest little twerp that I possibly can and not give this person that I am targeting a chance to think better or think at all about what's happening. Confuse him and instead of him feeling like an idiot, he will feel really good about doing all these things that I've asked him to do or rather demanded
0: him to do. In this case, though, he does not utter a single lie. He just lets this other guy assume, based on his demeanor and attitude, that this is someone of the nobility. But everything that Quoth says and asks of him in this case are things that are completely true. Like he definitely does need someone to get him up to the mayor. He's 100% correct that the mayor will be grateful for his services. He's doing something for the mayor. He legit is. None of this is a lie. He's just let this guy fill in a few blanks that are strategically left empty. This is also going to be key to Kvothe's strategy for surviving court.
1: What I love is this line that says, Baron Peter, like most nobility, he was self-centered as a gyroscope. And the only thing keeping him from sniffing and looking down his nose at me was his uncertainty. I think in this case, what Quoth is doing is just confusing this guy into thinking, I must know this person. Uh, And if I know this person, that means that they're worth my time.
0: We've probably met at a party somewhere. Yeah.
1: And if that's the case, then of course I need to do whatever he's asking. Because reasons? Huh? And I love it. I absolutely love it. And I also love that there is a callback to that just perfect, patronizing smile from that porter at the Gray Man, which is where Denna had been staying in Emre. Quoth really did remember that smile and did pull it out and use it at the right time.
0: That's what sold it. Again, no lies here, though. Next, we move to Chapter 54, The Messenger. I really love this, where we get both bluffing and fast-talking his way through every stop in the mayor's household, essentially.
1: For the most part, he let the Baron do most of the work. He just is like, I'm along for the ride. And then the moment that that no longer was working, he's like, bye.
0: So finally, he gets to Stapes, the one person that he knows he can't afford to be anything but genuine with. So here he drops the pretense and simply just presents the letter and lets Threpp's writing do the talking.
1: Threpp's handwriting of what Quoth crafted.
0: And Stapes takes a look at it. He's not thrilled by this. I mean, obviously it seems strange, but he accepts it and then escorts Quoth in to meet the mayor.
1: Well, first he escorts Quoth into the room before getting to meet the mayor. And... Make sure that he's intimidated by the presence of real, actual fighting men soldiers.
0: Yeah, these aren't (laughs) Renacops. They have full armor. They've got weapons that it's obvious they know how to use. They both have swords and pikes and knives, so they can fight in just about any condition.
1: And what's interesting is that the people with power, and this is in real life, this is in the book, this is all of it are the ones who have the luxury of time, and one of the ways that they exude their power is by making others wait for them. Yeah. So in a negotiation, there is power in stepping away and taking your time, even if your answer would have been yes, and letting the other one sweat a little bit.
0: It's why car salesmen always say, oh, I gotta go talk to my manager here real quick. and. The manager in this case is, they're just going into the break room and hanging out for a few minutes, and then coming back with whatever answer they wanna say. And when Stapes brings Foth before Alvaron, we see Alvaron in the presence also of Dagon. So Dagon is an interesting figure who is kind of terrifying. Like this is someone who, if he thought it was for the greater good, would burn down a village full of women and children. The greater good. I suspect that he is our introduction to the Amir in Meanwhile, we get our first description of Mayor Alvaron himself.
1: Quoth says, he was older than I thought he'd be.
0: What's interesting is, Quoth is someone who's younger than he looks as well. These are both people who the years have not been kind to.
1: Right. We have a definitive age for Quoth.
0: He's just past 16. He's still a baby.
1: He is a baby.
0: What we also get, though, is that the mayor's eyes are the one giveaway, that he's not as old as he looks. His eyes are described as cool and gray and intelligent and active. You get the sense that he's always calculating and sizing people up and evaluating plans within plans. The mayor may not be evil, but he's definitely someone who's cleverer than he lets on a lot of times. And we'll get a sense of some of this as we move forward.
1: So we finally actually get a little bit of the content of Threpp's letter of introduction. The most talented musician he's met in 10 years. Well-spoken. Charming. These are such Quoth words.
0: These also serve as something that Quoth has to live up to. Like... It's not enough for Quoth to be quick-witted. He has to actually be able to blend into the courtly environment. It's not enough for him to be a talented musician. He has to legit live up to that. Now, based on Quoth's performances at the Aeolian, we can probably make some inferences about that, but without his lute, he doesn't have a way to really truly demonstrate that.
1: I mean, he could sing.
0: He could, but that's not really his thing. And this letter is a check that his talents and skills are going to have to cash. We know that Threpp's sticking his neck out here, so Kvoth has a challenge ahead of him.
1: And then Mayor Alvaron continues to exert his power in the form of making Kvoth wait, which is really going to chafe Quoth so bad. He asks, do you have lodging? And Quoth has to say, no, sir, I don't. And... He- Alvaron goes, great, you'll stay here.
0: And frankly, this works in Quoth's favor. In a way. It works in Quoth's favor towards accomplishing his goals. However, it does not necessarily mean that Quoth is going to just enjoy it, as we'll soon discover.
1: What I think is interesting is the number of times here in these couple of chapters where Quoth does say, okay, so maybe losing all of my possessions wasn't the worst thing. And in fact, maybe it was the best thing because he lost things that would have gotten him in trouble, like the knives that he wore under his clothes all the time. Honestly, losing the gram is part plot point, but also part now he doesn't have to explain it.
0: And part of the interesting thing here is that his letter of introduction makes no mention of his talents as an arcanist. This is something that he gets to keep as sort of a secret sauce. It's something that allows him to be a little extra clever as well.
1: Also, not for nothing, but most people outside of the university view being an arcanist as some kind of witchcraft.
0: And we know that the people in Ventus tend to be especially superstitious as well. So again, it's a good thing to keep on the down low and to have that in your back pocket. You don't need to advertise it. And so Quoth is smart to just kind of keep quiet about all of this. In the meantime, he's got lodging established. And the mayor also orders a tailor to come by and outfit Quoth in brand new custom finery, which, honestly, again, Quoth needs to look the part.
1: And he's actually going to get like six new suits of clothing, including a new fine cloak that is less functional than Fella's cloak but is finer and fancier. What I find very interesting is that at a certain break point, paying more does not get you a more practical, better item. The better part of the value of it is so subjective. Like, it's fine cloth, except I don't know exactly what makes this thousand dollars per bolt of cloth better than the soft wool that could have been like a hundred bucks for a bolt of cloth. Like what causes that value to be so much greater?
0: I think there's a couple things. So first of all, because Kvothe is now in a court situation, practicality is a lot less important because all of the practical considerations are taken care of. So you don't need to have something that's going to keep you warm on a cold night because... You're indoors the whole time. You don't need something that's going to stand up to the weather because the weather is not a concern for you. You want something that just feels good against your skin and then something that is going to look fine and dramatic when you wear it. So at this point, Kvothe is caring more about what's going to work in this situation, which means that finer fabric, which maybe has more expensive dye, or it has a more labor-intensive manufacturing cost. All of that is really what Foth is getting now, as opposed to pure utilitarian value. So for his purposes, this is actually a more functional cloak.
1: I'd say that something similar happened in my brain yesterday when we went on our kind of weekly explore in the car to just kind of discover what was around our general area. and. We wind up going to these places that are up these hills and curved roads and would be nightmares to drive in the snow. But you know that the inconvenience is not actually a thing that adjusts the cost to be lower. These homes are actually going to cost more because of the view or because of not being right next to your neighbor or being secluded or any number of things that make it quote better but to me there were some of these that would have horrified me because due to their nature of being built on a hill the driveway
0: is a bridge it's a little inconvenient
1: it's very inconvenient and then on top of that the maintenance costs and everything is just like in my head going through the roof and somehow this is more desirable and or more expensive
0: meanwhile The chambers that the mayor puts Kvothe up in are huge. Like, they are cavernous. The bed itself is bigger than the room that he's been staying at in Anchor's. It's massive. This is way more room than he knows what to do with. And he's kind of stuck because he can't actually leave. Because the mayor could call for him at any point. So it's not like he can just go and hang out in Severin Low until he's got an appointment. He has to be there and ready at any time.
1: It took him about a day to realize how much he hated it. And I don't think he hated the quarters. I think he hates the lack of agency.
0: It's sort of like that situation where you feel like you're being tethered to a phone because you're expecting an important call. Now, granted, this was maybe a feeling that was a lot more onerous back in the days when everyone only had landlines. But that feeling, though, that you have to expect someone to call at any point can be really constricting.
1: So it's kind of more to me like if you have your cable provider coming by to install something and they give you that ridiculously stupid window of time. Oh, I'll be there sometime between 8 a.m. Tuesday, the 22nd of March and 5 p.m. on whatever day the. 23rd of June is.
0: So be ready. It could be at any time in there. Right. It's pretty maddening because you don't have the ability to go out and see the sights or just get some fresh air.
1: Like, let's say it was I'm giving you the six hour window. I might not have actually been planning to leave the house in that six hour window because gestures vaguely at everything. But now that I'm told that I can't, I want to.
0: Well, and throughout all of this, Quoth is missing the one thing that would have given him a way to pass the time. Each hour that he's forced to wait represents an hour that he can't go and reclaim his loot. And he can feel that clock ticking down.
1: This is also compounded by the fact that he's now well aware that he could do something to reclaim his loot if he needed to. But he also knows it's a really stupid idea
0: selling the clothes is something he could do but it's the sort of thing that would completely torpedo any of his efforts to get into the mayor's good graces
1: not only that but it would blow back onto threpp and then Threpp would probably disavow any knowledge
0: of cloth as a person i kind of get the feeling that threpp wouldn't be mad just disappointed and that's worse Because Threpp is generally a nice guy, and it always feels worse to disappoint someone that you respect like that. Our next chapter, 55, is called Grace, and it starts with Quoth finally out and about for the first time, and he's been summoned to meet the mayor out in the garden.
1: And they go through all of this formal courtesy that makes it sound like Mayor Alvaron has not been keeping Quoth in the gilded cage, and... Subject to his whims. Oh, it's nice of you to come and join me. Thank you. My pleasure. Meanwhile, he's been trapped.
0: I think part of this is also the mayor trying to test Quoth's patience to see if he really is as discreet and as clever as the letter says. I mean, that letter represented a pretty sizable check. And that means that Quoth has to walk the walk now. That means putting up with some inconvenience. That means being able to be polite, even when it's not the first thing he wants to do.
1: I would even say more than polite, because polite still allows for your own self-care.
0: Maybe let's put it this way. Decorous. Okay. Because here, Quoth is having to observe some social hierarchy, and we know that that really rankles him. He really doesn't like to be less than someone or to be perceived as less than someone. It's one of his deep insecurities. I think this comes from being born to a group of people who are regarded as low criminals in most places. And I think it also comes from his time growing up on the streets of Tarbien. And so being able to be patient and observe proper decorum in this situation is something that he's going to have to do if he's going to succeed at his task, whatever that might be. And this whole sequence here sort of feels like he and the mayor sort of feeling each other out, seeing how they interact with one another and seeing if they can trust one another. We get a sense that the mayor is calculating every word that he says and every step that he takes.
1: And every word that Quoth says.
0: Everything is being weighed and evaluated.
1: But you also get the impression that Alvaron likes tweaking the members of the court.
0: It's kind of a game for him at this point. He knows that the presence of this mysterious youth who no one knows who he is, who is suddenly seen in the company of the mayor and seen in close company at that, being
1: supportive physically,
0: and supporting the mayor in a position of vulnerability. That's got to cause some whispers and some head scratching and some speculation. And we also see that Kvothe is also weighing and measuring the mayor. And here we learn that the mayor is, like Kvothe, younger than he looks. He's not old. He's just sick.
1: There are a couple of instances, actually, in this couple of chapters I've noticed, where the tense of the word need is not needed it's not like Coat Quoth talking about how he needed things from the mayor or he needed things to happen in the way that they were going to happen. He used the word need. And I'm not sure if that is an error when it comes to the manuscript or if there's something more going on. And I'm not sure completely at all that I'm not just reading something into it.
0: I noticed that, too. It was a little strange. I'm not willing to rule out a typographical error, because those happen certainly and in a book this size. Editing is hard, folks. (laughs) But it is interesting, here we see the mayor leaning on Kvothe's arm for support and talking with him, but not actually saying much. All of this is him trying to see what kind of reactions he can get from Kvothe, and how does Kvothe react to being told to wait, to be patient, to be discreet. All of these things that his letter says that he is. He also says, whatever you do, don't tell anyone why you're here. The mystery will make it that much more fun.
1: And Quoth is like, it would be a lot easier to not spill those particular beans if I knew exactly why I was here. And the mayor just kind of shrugs it all off.
0: (laughs) You don't need to know yet. All of this feels like an audition. Like an audition for a very secretive part where... You don't want to have any spoilers for who you're actually going to be playing. And so they keep it in the dark, even from the person auditioning. He just is trying to get a sense for Kvoth's reactions and for how he responds.
1: And then he asks to be escorted back to his room, where presumably he doesn't tell Kvoth a damn thing.
0: That's part of it.
1: Afterward, we get my favorite little section here. Quoth returns to the rooms that he doesn't know quite exactly how to utilize properly. As illustrated by the fact that he discovers that there is like a lounging couch that he could be using. But he has no idea how to lounge.
0: I love how he says lounging is just relaxing when you have money in your pockets.
1: Again, money doesn't buy you happiness. Money buys you security, though. And allows you to have some enjoyment of your surroundings and take some time and pause again with power, time, all of this wrapped up.
0: Well, it's no coincidence that education was for a long time considered the province of the wealthy because they were the ones who had the leisure time to actually devote to pursuits that were not immediately practical or profitable. They could afford to do something that represented a short-term cost for a long-term benefit because they had that extra time. And they could study things that had no practical applications. Things like music or theater. Philosophy. Exactly.
1: The next page, there are at least three paragraphs that start with, I missed my loot. I have been stuck places where I didn't have the things that were comfortable for me available to me, where ostensibly I had access to loads of different things that could have entertained me. But the one thing or the two things that I would have really enjoyed having that access to, those were not present. And therefore, I felt like I really couldn't do much. And the space chafed because i felt like i was stuck and i can definitely sympathize with both. like a little bit of context i know that many episodes ago we've talked about how we've wanted to get a house through a series of forked up events we've been stalled on those plans and while the rental that we're in isn't terrible it's also not great things keep falling apart there are some definite DIY projects that either the landlords did or previous renters did that are undesirable. The paint jobs are also undesirable. Who paints the ceiling of a bathroom brick red or uses a color that will turn poop brown when you use yellow incandescent lighting? Eh. So there's that feeling of like, well, I really can't change my surroundings, but I really don't like them, that I can definitely feel Quoth feeling. Crossing fingers, any good juju you can put out into the universe, dear audience, like, it would be great if we could, you know, get some unstuckifying. But I feel that way about a lot of people. A lot of us are feeling that really stuck feeling. Right now, especially if you're still trying your best not to catch COVID and it takes a toll on you mentally. And I just hope that for everyone out there, that for your sake, you're able to affect some change in your life that is positive. End of soapbox.
0: So with that out of the way, let's actually move on to our Phronemos of the week. Who did you pick?
1: Oh goodness, this was difficult because there's not very many people other than Quoth, and we know that Quoth is never Arfornimos. But that almost sort of leaves the really idiotic Baron, not it, and kinda the person at the coffee shop. Guess his name was Jim. Uh, I mean, Alvaron is. eh, I don't want to choose Alvaron in this particular instance. I don't. Like all the courtly bullshit. So I'm choosing Stapes, mostly because I know future knowledge of just how amazing this man actually is. Stapes, while knowing that he needs to protect the mayor from the unsavory sort, is also beholden to what the mayor wants. And he's not going to fight against things outright but he is so well versed in the ways of the court he is a hair's breadth from nobility and he has much more status than like you were saying even the richest merchant
0: the feeling i get from stapes is that he's kind of like alfred pennyworth like, he is a jack-of-all-trades. He knows just about everything, about everyone. He knows the comings and goings. But the thing that defines him, in addition to his competence, is his steadfast loyalty. There is a reason why Mayor Alvaron trusts Stapes with everything that he does. And it is not to do with his birth or anything like that. It is with his character.
1: Nothing to do with his station.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Stapes rose to where he is because he is fundamentally decent, kind, and loyal.
1: And trustworthy.
0: And we know that in a courtly situation like this, Alvaron is used to dealing with people who will tell him what he wants to hear, who will be trying to work their own ends and trying to manipulate him. And so having someone who has zero interest in manipulating him, who is able to tell him hard truths and is able to give him solid advice and is able to see him at his most vulnerable, is something that he relies on in a way that he can't really do with anyone else.
1: Again, all the future knowledge about this character has informed my decision for this
0: week. Stapes is someone who is simple and matter of fact and presents things with confidence without coming across as being puffed up or arrogant, which is a massive difference compared to all the other members of the court that Quoth describes. This is someone who just simply is matter of fact and straightforward and is able to be confident because he knows exactly who he is.
1: And I think that Quoth did a good thing by not trying to BS his way through that particular person.
0: One of the things that I did notice here is that the people that Kfoth seems to treat with the most respect, and I mean this in terms of who he actually views with respect, are the people that he regards as workers, whether it's the tailor, who he seems to think of fondly, or the waiter at the cafe, or Stapes. describes as like a grocer. But he doesn't mean this in a negative sense. He means this is someone who is practical, who is courteous and service oriented. It's almost a mark of respect as far as Kvothe is concerned. So just some interesting stuff there.
1: But it seems like you agree with me. Stapes is the right choice. I agree. So now it is time for you to tell us an interesting fact.
0: All right, so I'm going to be talking about the Endurance. So in 1914, the Endurance Expedition, led by Ernest Shackleton, set out to chart the landmass of Antarctica by hiking from the Weddell Sea to the South Pole and then to the Ross Sea on the other side of the continent. Now, you might know Shackleton's name because of the whiskey inspired by the spirit that he took along on his journey, but his story is actually a lot more fascinating than just the booze that bears his name. So the central goal of the Endurance expedition was to perform that first ground crossing of Antarctica. However, it never got that far, because the Endurance got hopelessly stuck in dense pack ice in early 1915. So the crew of 28 was forced to abandon ship and establish a rudimentary base camp on the flowing ice. The ship eventually plunged through, falling to the seafloor on November 21st, 1915. The crew drifted on the ice until April of 1916, and then eventually made their way to Elephant Island. Then, using a lifeboat, a small party that included Shackleton ventured to South Georgia Island in search of help, which resulted in the rescue of the entire crew in September of 1916." So think about that. That's like almost two years from the start of the expedition till when they actually recovered. The bulk of it spent camping on the ice.
1: Okay, that puts the last two years into perspective now, doesn't it?
0: It really does. So meanwhile, the ship's captain, Frank Worsley, used a sextant to document the exact spot where the endurance sank, which he listed at 68 degrees, 39 minutes and 30 seconds south by 52 degrees, 26 minutes, 30 seconds west. So he managed to calculate the exact position on the map where the ship sank. So there's a new expedition that's been mounted to go try and find the Endurance. We've never actually been able to find it before. So this team called Endurance 22 is going to head to those exact coordinates and then explore the seafloor across an area measuring about 5 miles by 9 miles, where the depths of the water measure roughly about 2.17 miles deep. Pretty impressive. So Geographer John Shears is going to be leading this expedition, which consists of marine archaeologists, engineers, technicians, and sea ice scientists. They're going to spend about 35 days in search of the Endurance, which they're going to do using a pair of Saab Sabertooth underwater vehicles. So these subs are capable of reaching sites about 100 miles from the research vessel, collecting photos, video, and survey data. Should the ice prove to be too challenging for the ship, though, the Sabertooths will still be able to survey the wreck, even if the ship can't reach that spot. So they'll use a helicopter to drop a team to a specific location, from which point they'll drill down to the ocean and then deploy the subs. So the other thing that's really important to note about this is they're not going to try and recover any artifacts. The ship is considered to be of historical importance and it's protected under an international treaty. So instead what they're going to do is they're gonna try and capture detailed 3D images of the wreck. So this is going to be a strictly eyes-only mission. And it will tell us a lot about the currents around the Antarctic. And it'll also see what sort of marine life has been able to convert the wreck into a new habitat.
1: That's interesting. It kind of reminds me of how James Cameron funded a expedition to go find the Titanic.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of that same feel. And the other thing that's really interesting is... You know, when you look at sort of this early 20th century exploration era, there's a lot of colonialist undertones. However, the Shackleton expedition is unique because there was no indigenous life to worry about. There were no indigenous peoples to be displaced. It's the only truly uninhabited place on earth.
1: At least by people.
0: And so it's really interesting to see what they were able to find And it's also pretty amazing that the entire crew managed to escape all of this.
1: That they all survived for two years.
0: Yeah, that took some serious teamwork and dedication to get everyone to survive that.
1: So tell me again, when are they going to go?
0: They left actually just this past weekend. Oh, cool. So by the time this episode airs, they will have been there for a couple weeks.
1: That's really neat.
0: Yeah, I thought that'd be interesting. And like I say, this also gives you an excuse to get some fine malt whiskey.
1: (laughs) Thank you for being less depressing than the last time you talked.
0: You're welcome. I knew I had to find something a little more exciting.
1: (laughs) And a little more upbeat. Yep. A little more hopeful.
0: A little bit. (laughs) So let's go into our recommended thing of the week. It's your turn. So what's yours?
1: All right. So let me preface this a little bit. Back in July, we were able to include a interview with Will's grandpa, Jack, on one of our podcasts. It was the mailbag episode. It was the last time that Will got to go to Georgia to visit his grandpa.
0: It was the last time I got to see him in person. So just for full clarity on... December 31st of 2021, uh, Grandpa passed. You know, he was in many ways my Phrenemos. He's someone that I've looked to throughout my life as a model of wisdom, as a model of virtue. It was very difficult to lose him, even as we knew that it was going to happen sooner or later. And I had made my peace with that. I mean, he
1: was 94? And this was his third time that he had cancer. Yeah. And he just decided he didn't want to go through all of the hell that is cancer treatments. And so we all knew it was going to happen. But doesn't really make it not hurt?
0: Like, even though I expected it to hurt, it hurt more than I imagined it would.
1: But to get back to the point of what I'm trying to get to. He left us a gift in the form of money, which to me, that's very, very kind of him, but it doesn't feel like a thing that is necessarily something I feel free just spending on frivolous things. So in one way, he's helping us with the future purchase of our first house. And we fully plan on honoring him with a few things. A fruit tree of some sort in our yard, hopefully one that will grow in the area we live in. Cross our fingers. And then a way to display the bow tie collection that Will's aunts have very graciously chosen to let me have, because I adore bow ties, and that was a way that Jack and I could feel very close to one another, because he was always dapper in his bow tie, but my actual recommendation here, we're choosing to spend some of this towards charities, specifically three that Will's grandpa would have absolutely chosen of his own accord. And those are...
0: So Grandpa supported the United Methodist Corps of Relief, both financially and also through his own efforts doing hurricane cleanup around the American Southeast. Anytime a hurricane made landfall, he would be rounding up a crew of volunteers with toolboxes and trucks and everything to go help people rebuild their homes. I remember after his first bout with cancer, he would barely finished chemotherapy when he was already putting together a new expedition to go help people rebuild. And so UMCOR, that United Methodist Corps of Relief was one of his great passions. The other was Habitat for Humanity because he really respected the way that it helped People with less money actually get homes that they needed and lift people out of poverty. And then the third is Young Harris, which was his alma mater. It's where he first went to school. It's where he met my grandmother. And one of the things that he really loved was sponsoring a trip back to Scotland to explore the theological heritage that really inspired his way of being.
1: So another thing that we're going to be donating to is actually something that I am choosing as my recommended thing. Unfortunately, from looking at the timing, this is probably going to come out a few days after, but that's the Project for Awesome, which is hosted by Hank and John Green and Benefits, places like Partners for Health. And this is all going to go through the Foundation to Decrease World Suck, which is the Green Brothers charitable organization and they do this every year this is the 15th project for awesome so even if you got this after the p4a is done for the year they'll do it again next year but i'd also recommend looking at the list of charities that they donate to where the money that they collect then goes and even making a direct donation Something like water.org or the Ocean Cleanup Project. So because I've now realized that this particular event, which is an amazing live stream and gathers a whole bunch of people in Nerdfighteria, which is their community, is probably going to be over and done with for this year. I would say that if you have the opportunity, even if it's just a couple of dollars, find a charity or an organization or a cause that you are deeply passionate about. So our plan is to donate through the Project for Awesome so that our funds go to a lot of helpful causes. I actually have them set up as my Amazon Smile donation place. And I have a browser extension that gives ad revenue to charities of my choice and they're my choice and those are ways that are actually pretty much free to help those organizations the other one that we're going to be donating a little bit to is the trevor project and while jack didn't know about the foundation to decrease world suck and probably didn't know much about or anything about the trevor project we ran these ideas past will's aunt who said that Will's grandpa would have absolutely loved that choice as well. And so, yes, we were fortunate enough to receive money that could then be passed on to charities, but I've donated to the Foundation to Decrease World Suck in many ways, and I've donated to the Project for Awesome for a few years now. The great thing about the P4A is that you get fun and interesting perks sometimes. So those can include John or Hank reading portions of books that they haven't released yet, which is how I got to hear at least, I think the first chapter of An Absolutely Remarkable Thing before it was a book. It was just a little story that Hank was working on. And there's just a host of things that you can get as kind of a thank you for making your donation. I don't think that charitable donations really do need to have a perk come back for it, but it's kind of nice. It's a really cool way to do a charity drive. And if you're absolute, you know, gigantic nerds like us, (laughs) it's a fun thing to watch. And you can probably go back and watch their live stream. I think it's, saved to their channel, the Vlogbrothers channel. And I can guarantee you a few things. Either one or both of the brothers will wind up with their child drawing marker something on their face. There will probably be at least one nightmare image of a Furby with beans all over it.
0: (laughs) Or some other different cursed image.
1: And a lot of in-jokes, including the sheep's Glen and Dale But also a lot of your favorite nerdy YouTube creators are going to show up on the live stream and make videos of their own promoting causes that they care about. So even if you missed it, totally worth going back and checking out and keeping on your calendar for next year.
0: Excellent. That's a good idea. Thank you. So that let's go ahead and move on to seven words. So you have the books this week. Uh, What did you pick? so
1: i noticed something there aren't very many options of seven words in this section there's no denna there's no (sighs) eloden
0: so what did you find
1: well nothing exciting until the very last seven words (laughs) the very last sentence it was like watching stories being born
0: Hmm. That's a good one.
1: I know. I'm like reading through this section going, there's nothing good. There's nothing good. What am I going to do? There's nothing good. There's no, Oh, and those are the ones I chose. Nice. How about you? You have seven words from life.
0: So I've got a couple here. These are just from conversations that you and I have had. So we have my eyes are going to fall out. (laughs) Not the best. Not going to lie.
1: That was probably because I was spending an entire day doing retouching of our wedding photos from 10 years ago for your mom.
0: Yep, that's exactly what it was.
1: (laughs) And I got screen fatigue.
0: Then we got, I feel like some kind of Frankenstein's monster.
1: Because I had to do a technique called an eye swap for your brother because he blinked during the good version of one of the group shots that I wanted to keep. And then I had to go find him not blinking in a different group shot. And then I had to change your head from one (laughs) photo to another because you were looking down.
0: And the one that I ultimately chose was I am not sorry for that pun. (laughs) The thing to understand is that I will never be sorry for any pun that I make.
1: And I don't want you to be.
0: Good. I am a ruthless punster. (laughs) And that is who I am. That is who I will always be. And I promise you, dear listener, that if I make a pun, I meant to do it.
1: (laughs) Well, with that, thank you for potting with me.
0: And thank you for potting with me.
1: And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone.
0: Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 56 through 58 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of maneuvering.
1: We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music.
0: And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring.
1: Audio production, editing, and social media coordination courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough.
0: And writing and project management courtesy of me, Will McCullough.
1: If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com waystonepod, where you can get things like early access. Also, there are things like an upcoming Patreon exclusive bonus pod on the second book of the Sandman and art projects that I swear I will get done, but I have been in a kind of weird funk and I'm trying. Anyway, with that, here's to one more day above the roses
0: to One More Day Above the Roses.
1: Ding! The creative process at work, as Will determines the name of the episode right before we record it. And I try to appease the cats that are outside trying to get in. The creative process is a silent one. (laughs)